It's a good day when before the intro you can say, to scores and pours. To scores and pours. Yes. The dozen or so times that I've tasted this grape, it always tastes to me like lemon kind of creme pat or something. Like patisserie cream, but lemon. It tastes like lemon or like a sponge cake of sorts. It's very lemony, complete with the acidity of said lemon. Mm, And that little bit of just yeast and butter. Mm. Welcome to Scores and Pours, the podcast where you learn about wine and classical music. Hosted by sommelier Joe Mott, that's me, and radio host Miss Emily Reese. Today we're talking about things that are everywhere. So I'm going to talk about something called the pentatonic scale. And Jill is going to talk about... Petnats and method ancestral wines. They're everywhere. They're everywhere. If you like the show, please consider making a financial contribution to our Patreon page. We have tiers there for you to select which level works best for you. Patreon.com slash scores and pours. There's also a link there that'll take you to a place where you can buy scores and pours hoodies and tees. Thank you to our existing patrons. We could not do this without your support. First, okay. Hi. Hi. (laughs) It's 8,000 below zero here in the Twin Cities right now. Our studio is leaky and cold. Normally, we would turn the heat off to do these episodes. Not so today. We aren't that brave. If you hear humming in the background, just know that that's our heater. We're a little warmer. (laughs) I have so many layers on that I look like the Michelin Man. You do. So It's true. Today's today's a a cool one. We're going to warm up, though. We've already started drinking bubbles. (laughs) So I'm a few degrees warmer inside and out. (laughs) Indeed. So what are you going to talk about today? Well, you mentioned a few weeks ago, you're like, I really want to talk about the pentatonic scale. And I'm like, okay. I feel like I knew what the pentatonic scale was or I should say is, Mm -hmm. but when I said, can you tell me how to describe it in like terms that I can then find Venice equivalents, right? Like I need you to kind of dumb it down for me because I, you know, you said, well, it's everywhere. Yeah. You said it's been used culturally all over modern music, ancient music, and it's very pleasing. And I was like, oh, bubbles. I'm going to talk about, well, and first, actually, first in, in my, I mean, I shouldn't go right there. I said, ooh, what about rosé? Yeah. And then I thought, well, rosé, besides the color and being everywhere, it's not, there's nothing primal really about rosé. And so I wanted to, I wanted to choose something that had even more to do with the qualities, the pentatonic scale. So I settled Eight. on. You said, why don't you talk more about pet nats in depth? Because we haven't really talked in depth about pet nats. And still, there are some people out there that don't know what they are. They're sparkling mm-hmm. wines, and I'll get into what they are. But I also wanted to be very certain that we coupled in with this episode wines that are made very similarly, a lot of uh, similar techniques, if you will, 
I also need to make sure that I lump in with Petnats, Method Ancestral sparkling wines because they share a lot of the same transformations, mm-hmm. like their fermentation and what happens to them and, and how they're made. But there are a few very key elements to why Petnats are not Method Ancestral and vice versa. Interesting. So that's what, and then we're going to taste one of those today, of course. Well, I think we're tasting it already. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> Half the bottle's gone. Who am I kidding? No, just kidding. I'm so kidding. Yeah, we haven't drank that much. But it's funny because a lot of, not a, I, I would say more often than not, we wait. You know, we'll be like, all right, now let's open the wine. But not lately. Not lately. It's cold. <laughs> it's cold. We need the warmth. So, yes, I am going to talk about the pentatonic scale today. And it is everywhere. It's in every culture across all humanity's time span. It's incredible. Um, and it, has found its way into classical music in various uh, guises. So we'll talk about some of those. But we'll also give you some, you know, modern examples from, like, rock songs and stuff that you can kind of get your brain around. But I'll also be playing you some examples on the either the keyboard or the trumpet or both. We haven't really decided yet. We'll figure it out. Both, please, both. Well, I mean, if it sounds like shit... Okay. I mean, my playing will be impeccable no matter what. It would be the recording. <laughs> it's just kidding. Yeah, yeah. let's let's anyway. make sure everyone knows that. <laughs> yeah. The playing will be impeccable. The playing would be flawless. <laughs> it would be the microphone's fault if anything sounds awry. Okay. Well, I love that you're going to try to do both. We'll see. Yeah, we'll see. But yeah, that's, well, so, that's my thing. So when we talk about anti- antiquity, you're like it's been used for... It, does the pentatonic scale, I know it goes back centuries. Does it go back millennia? Like ancient Greece. Okay. So. So that's millennia. Yeah. Um, the method ancestral of the two wines that we're going to talk about today is the older method of sparkling wine that oh. does go all the way back to antiquity. Of course, I'll mm-hmm. talk about what it is, but definitely happened at first as an accident. Fast okay. forward, now in modern times, people are replicating the method ancestral because the reason why that kind of happened had to do mostly with weather. Oh. And then Petnats, which comes much later, they're actually only about 20-ish years old. Petnats is more of like, a, of course, a modern thing. but Petnats um, only 20 years old? I'm sure that there were Petnats back in the year 2000 BCE, right? Okay. But... And I'll talk about why in a second. People will understand that statement more in 20 minutes when okay. I divulge how okay. they're both made. Gotcha. But by all intents and purposes, the words Petnat mm-hmm. put together mm-hmm. for this specific purpose happened about 20 years ago. Gotcha. Wow. That's incredible. Yeah, but, I mean, pentatonic scale you can find really all over, which is pretty amazing. I like mean, all over the world, you mean? Yeah, I mean, the ancient Greece, as we mentioned, you can find it. You find it in various Native American musics all of Europe, so Eastern Europe, the Nordic countries, um, Scotland, Ireland, Croatia? England, Croatia, Eastern, you know, all of Eastern Europe, um, Madagascar, English, as I mentioned, German, all the Turkic. Language speakers, so Mongolia, Siberia. Then there's you can find it in African music, various African countries and cultures, in addition to Afro-Caribbean music, which so means Madagascar, <laughs> and it, it, Japan, of course, uh, China. It's it's amazing. It, American folk song. It's really one of the more ubiquitous 
examples of music. You know that you know? there are there are pet knots made in Idaho. I mean, wow. I'm just I'm just piggybacking here. Yeah. Pet knots are everywhere. Method ancestral to some extent, but pet yeah. knots are everywhere. And it does seem like a weird place to make a pet knot, Idaho. Well, should I? Maybe I should just tell people. Yeah, I'd love to know because I'm if, I'm excited to hear because you when you asked me about the pentatonic scale, you're like, I need the elevator pitch more or less. You're like, give me just like a sentence about what it is and why it's special, and so I did that. So. I want you to do the same about both of these. Like, what's the elevator pitch for Petnat and what's the elevator pitch? Or what's the elevator pitch for the difference between the two? Yes. That's, that elevator yeah. pitch. So we're going to go to the 400th floor. Yes, let's do it. Okay. Because elevator <laughs> pitch, we're, we, we have a full podcast to fill up. So, um, well, I guess we'll start on, on floor zero. Yes, that's totally fine. Acceptable. is about the mid-1500s. Okay. 1530s to be more specific. And that's when the first mention, written records of sparkling wine exists. Okay. Or was made mention of. And in the 1530s, if if that was the first mention of a sparkling wine, we all know that that then was happening at least decades, if not a century plus beforehand, right? People kind of figuring out how to do it. And, yep. and that was supposedly, it was the monks of St. Hilaire. So we're west of Montpellier, we're in southern France, we're the ones who made mention of this. Okay. And what they were alluding to, or speaking to, was the method ancestral way of making sparkling wine, the ancestral method of making sparkling wine. And what is that? You're taking, back at, during that time, they didn't have packeted yeasts, right? Like commercial yeast to yep. dump into a wine. So you would have natural yeasts growing amongst, on the grapes, You'd go to press them or macerate them or whatever they were doing to get color or not. And then the taste at, during that period was for wines with a little bit of sugar. So wines were bottled kind of halfway through fermentation or part of the way through fermentation so that they would have a little sweetness, right? The yeasts feed on sugar. But if all of a sudden if, if it's capped or corked, then you, you're left with a, a, sweet, a sweeter wine. What happens? That cork or that crown cap, well, they didn't have crown caps back in the day, but when that bottle was sealed, late fall, early winter, that cellar's cold. So those yeasts aren't going to wake up. They're, they're, they're not going to be warm enough to keep fermenting, right? So they're going to shut down. People are just drinking their sweet wine mm -hmm. out of the cellar all winter. And then what happens late spring or early summer, the cellars warm up and the yeasts are like, like bears coming out of hibernation, <laughs> they stretch and they start to go to work and they feed. What That's are amazing. you left with? You're left with bubbles, so CO2, and you're left with a little bit higher alcohol and a lot of times less sugar because yeah. they feed on that sugar, right? That is the method ancestral. You are replicating a fermentation stopping and then restarting. Because of cold. Many months later. Many months later. Wow. Or sometimes weeks later, depending okay. on in this, in now speaking nowadays, right? And so a pet nat, the difference is in a pet nat, you have one single continuous fermentation. So same process in a, in a natural wine, right? You're not going to add any packeted yeast. So you have yeasts are feeding, feeding, feeding. And when there's about 9 to 12 grams of residual sugar left, winemaker says, oops, I'm going to put nowadays a crown cap on it. Boop, like a beer bottle cap. Yeah. And then what happens? 
we keep it in, in nice temperate conditions, maybe cooler, but not cold. And those yeasts are feeding, feeding, producing. They're eating up sugars, producing CO2 and producing alcohol. So you're left with a little bit more alcohol, a little bit less sweetness, but then you're got, you have a, you have a sparkling wine and that can happen in weeks or that can happen in months. But the difference between method ancestral is that it the fermentation stops for a certain period, which usually I find you end up with a slightly quote unquote cleaner flavor. Hmm. It's not as estery and fermenty and funky. Okay. Also, all during that time, your your wine is settling, right? So you can have a lot of the sediment. Yeah. Sometimes method ancestral wines look a little bit clearer, hmm. even though a lot of them they're not usually they're not filtered, but they tend to look like they've maybe been slightly filtered. They're not as cloudy and hazy with two feet of sediment like a lot of pet nats have. Okay. And so those are the main the main differences, but they both have lower carbonation than a champagne. They have one fermentation, so not two, like a champagne that has a second fermentation in bottle. It's gotten all the way dry, and then people have added sugar or yeast or something or grape juice to have to that second fermentation. Again. Okay. So that doesn't happen in a pet nat or a method ancestral. Correct. Yeah. The difference is nowadays what's confusing is when you look at the back of a wine bottle and it says method, the ancestral method of making wine, some people, you have a wine that's fermented almost all the way dry or maybe it's three quarters of the way through the process and they add a little bit of grape juice, a su- sweet food for the yeast yeah. to like either wake them up again or to create that second for like a a full on second fermentation. And that's where that title of method ancestral gets kind of not, it gets a little bit skewed or blurry because technically that's not ancestral is like when you, when they didn't know what they were doing, right. It was old school. Yep. Just imagine like the look on their face the first time their bottles started exploding. Like, can you just imagine trying to figure that out when it's like, yeah, 800 BC or some shit? Well, I'm at, (laughs) Or 1530s. But yeah, for sure. I mean, because if it was happening in 1530s, it was happening likely decades or centuries before. Yeah. But imagine that stuff had to happen in like the 6,000 BCE when yeah. wine was, yeah. you know, we first have found that wine was had been being made at that time. Yep. Egyptian times. All the times, you, back yeah, you eight thousand years, man. There were things exploding all yeah, over the place. Yeah, they're blowing up amphora left and right. Yeah, they weren't knowing. Hey, no. let's not bottle this or or you know yeah. seal this vessel. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I love it. It wasn't until like the eighteen hundreds when like thicker glass was specifically conceived to remedy that problem. Amazing. I know. Amazing. Okay. I was about to pour us wine, but we should talk. We should talk about the pentatonic scale. Yeah. So the pentatonic scale. What is the scale, pentatonic scale? At its simplest, a pentatonic scale is a scale that has five notes. We talked in our episode about the Russians, the group of Russians. We talked. Uh, I mentioned about the octatonic scale. That scale has eight notes, right? Octatonic. A pentatonic scale has five notes. And what's a scale? A scale is an arrangement of notes that musicians use to make music. I mean, whether ordered or disordered, Mm -hmm. uh, there are scales in use. A pentatonic scale is one of them. But just to give you kind of context, this is what a C major scale sounds like. 
This is the C harmonic minor scale. Here's an octatonic scale that starts on a C. Here's a whole tone scale that starts on a C. That scale only has seven notes. And here's the pentatonic scale. This is the C major pentatonic scale. That sounds like every song that's on top 40 right now. <laughs> It's such a pleasing and simple scale, and you hear it all the time, uh, everywhere. You hear it in rock songs, that, well, like we said, all over, over the world in all kinds of different genres of music, all over jazz, rock, pop, country music, it's everywhere. So the C major scale, there's also a C minor pentatonic scale that sounds obviously different, and this is what the C minor pentatonic scale sounds like. So those are two types of pentatonic scales that you hear in classical music. Now, just keep in mind, I just want to acknowledge, pentatonic scale literally means five notes. So there are many varieties of five-note scales found around the world, particularly in um, uh, the music of India and like mm. uh, Java and all these gamelan cultures um, Japanese music has varying degrees of five-note scales that are important to their musical history and things along those lines. But in classical music, in Western classical music, you'll often hear those two types of pentatonic scales. Cool. All right. Cool. All right. Seems so, pretty straightforward. Yeah. Yeah, it, it really is. And it's it's something that uh, Jean-Philippe Rameau wrote about. We've talked about Rameau before. He was a Baroque composer born in 1683. And so when he was writing in the 1700s, he was talking about the music of China and this five-note scale that he felt related very closely to our major scale. They share notes. Mm -hmm. So that's true. Um, he had a little different view on it that Western music evolved out is, is like a, an evolution of Eastern music. And that's kind of a, I don't know, kind of a pedantic way to think about it really, because it's not really accurate. I mean, they're two separate entities. Yeah. Even if one came from the other, they still grew and developed into their own yeah. whole entire entity. So it's not like one was an improvement over the other, right? So in any event, that's a, a little bit about the pentatonic scale. Okay, so who... <laughs> I feel like this, it's so simple yeah. that it's not. Like, we're going to all of a sudden be talking about, like, the pentatonic B-flat minor scale that's only used in, say... Punta del Fuego in Chile or some shit like that. Like, is that what, like, <laughs> is it getting going to get way more complicated or not? 
Uh, really, not really very much more complicated. It's, it's okay, a let's, very let's, let's, simple, simple thing. Okay, well, let's listen to it. Okay, let's listen to some uh, some music from a composer who got really taken by it, and that was the French composer Claude Debussy. Heard, he heard this at the Paris, Paris Exhibition. He heard a Javanese gamelan orchestra. Now, a gamelan orchestra, if you've never heard gamelan, gamelan sounds like the, here's some Javanese gamelan uh, music. Sign me up for that. <laughs> so gamelan orchestras are ensembles with multiple, many players in them, and there are m- many of them are playing what are called metallophones, which are instruments that have either metal domes or discs or metal bars that are struck with um, mallets. So basically like um, uh, vibraphone is a metallophone. xylophone wouldn't be, right? Because a xylophone has wooden... Okay, but in any event, that's gamelan. And Debussy encountered this at the Paris Exhibition in 1889 and loved what he heard and was really taken with these patterns of five notes that they would use, how they would just certain whatever music they were playing at the time. Yeah. And uh, ended up incorporating it into some of his pieces. So let's listen to the first movement of a piece that he wrote in 1903 called Estampe, which um, is a three-movement piece that kind of takes you to different places. So the first movement takes you to... The Far East, the second movement, Iberian Peninsula, the third movement is just a rainy garden. But this first movement is all based on the pentatonic scale in the right hand. You had me at Debussy. super peaceful and pretty. One of the reasons it's so beautiful and peaceful and pretty is that it lacks the dissonance mm-hmm. that is uh, that is that exists in a major scale or a minor scale for that matter. Yeah, so, like the like a like two white notes being played together, say. Well, two white notes playing be together being played together can that sound are, really nice. I, 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 no, I mean like next to each other. Sorry, like an E and an F, like A, B, C. Well, like a half note or a half step rather. Sure. Yes. Now, there are 
pentatonic scales that do contain half steps. See, here's where we're getting into the... Yeah, in other in other cultural music. Okay. So like what I was saying, Japanese music has some scales and I can't exactly, there's a technical term for pentatonic scales that have a half step in them and pentatonic scales that don't. Okay. Um, but, but the major pentatonic scale doesn't contain half steps nor any dissonance. And so it makes it just so pleasant. Yeah, like perfect for when you like, like I used to go to, I don't know, like I remember going to Target back in the day when I was like literally 10 yeah. and they had the little listening things or whatever and you could just push yep. and it was like rainy day at wherever mm-hmm. or in a spring garden, whatever. And you'd push it and it'd be like this really melodic, it, I don't want to say uncomplicated because that's not what I mean, Yeah, but like very just pretty, yes. you know, easy, easy listen. Nobody's going to listen to that and say... That's not pleasing. They right. could say I don't like it, but they can't say it's not like pleasing to the ear. Yeah, that's yeah. very like a la Petnat method ancestral. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Hmm. So yeah, so we'll hear more Debussy in just a minute because I, I mean he did it many times, but we'll hear more Debussy momentarily, and then we'll hear some other really great examples from uh, composers in from other places other than France. You seem surprised when I said, "Oh yeah, Petnat, just twenty years." The the term twenty years ish old, give or take. You were like, "Only?" Yeah. And I think that's something that really doesn't get talked about much. So I really I wanted to speak to it quickly. There was a gentleman by the name of Christian Chaussard who he was really well known in the Loire Valley, which is basically the the homeland for Petnat. Not only because the term was coined there by Christian Chaussard, but also because it's just. It's the Jardin de France, right? The one of the biggest organic gardens, quote unquote, in all of France. Like mm. you have the, some of the most organic and biodynamic viticulture under vine. Natural wines happening there. So pet nets are like exploding all over the Loire and have been for a decade plus. But Christian Chaussard, he's really well known, right in the center of the Loire Valley of the region of Vouvray, so Chenin Blanc country, and he made a demi sec. Now, demi-sec is a wine that usually when you're making wines in Vouvray and you decide to make sex, meaning not S-E-X, but <laughs> S-E-C-S for those of you who have dirty minds. So sex are like dry wines and then demi-sex have a little bit of sugar and you'll have different vineyards and different vintages that you'll be like, ooh, that's a, it's a really good vintage to make some demi-sec this year because you have to have a warmer vintage, but you have to have even ripening so you have enough acidity so you don't have a flabby sweet little bit little bit of a sweeter wine and i don't mean dessert wine i mean like yeah you know when you add a, just a smallest amount of sugar to balance out your lemonade kind of thing <laughs> and christian chaussard he made a demi sec and it kind of kept fermenting after he bottled it and when he opened it it was like it had it had quote unquote like re-fermented it had huh. but it was one continuous fermentation this wasn't like in the springtime he yeah. opened it a few weeks or months later and here it was like had some bubbles and he was like, wow, this is like pétillance naturelle. It's like got natural pétillance. And it sort of stuck. And he knew this really famous now natural winemaker, Thierry Pouzelot. And Thierry Pouzelot, and then, you know, all the homies in Loire Valley is big. It's long. It's like half the country of France. But within the Loire Valley, viticulturists, a lot of them know each other, right? And so, oh my gosh. And it tastes, you know, they mm-hmm. started to like learn how to make it. When you're making wine, you don't want to get together and start beating the damn bush about like talking about 
oh, you're terroir-driven wine. Oh, you're terroir-driven. Oh, you're <laughs> terroir-driven. I mean, yeah, people shoot the shit about wine, but a lot of people just honestly, sorry, but they just want to party and yeah. like drink and hang out. <laughs> yeah. And Petillon Naturel ended up being this wine that you could just like slug back, you know? It yeah. was like, had bubbles. It was just dry and was really just fun to drink. Lower alcohol. It wasn't as like super carbonated as champagne. So people just started to like, it caught on. Yeah. And people were making it more and more. And then we fast forward to now, pet nets are made all over the world. And I'll talk a little bit about where and, and some people that are making them that would surprise you. But the reason why we're going to taste a Method Ancestral wine today is because along with pet nets becoming all the rage, so has the rage also risen for people that are desiring like a lower, like a sparkling wine that's got a little bit lower alcohol that's fun to drink just in general, right? It doesn't need to be a pet nat. And so method ancestral is a, in some regions, it's a regulated term. Like the wine has to be, or the half wine, we'll call it, has to be chilled. And then the temperatures rise in the cellar and then the yeast wake up again. That's like a kind, can be a regulated thing. Whereas pet yeah. nats usually are demoted to the, Von de France category, like table wine category. Crazy. Because it doesn't fit. You can't have like a pet nat that's a, from Vouvray or a pet nat that's from Beaujolais. You're now a wine from France. Whereas oh. Method Ancestral can be from certain areas. Okay. Like there, there are certain areas that are just because you say, I think like Blanquette de Limoux is my, my memory is telling me, is like an AOC that is, or an AOP in France that is dedicated to wine made in this way. Okay. Um, and so let's, let's, let's taste this bad yeah, boy. Yeah, let's talk Officially. about it. Let's, yeah, let's talk, because smelling it made me so happy. This is, we, we talk about this often. This is one of my favorite smells when we're smelling wine is just rocks and bread. Yeah, this is like definitely. Like a bread sand, like a rock sandwich. For sure, but do you do you agree that it's not like as yeasty as champagne? Like Definitely. We've talked about like all oh, brioche 100%. and stuff like that. Yeah. Oh yeah, this is like a very mild, freshly baked bread. Like not a not a super in your face sourdough anything like that or whatever. And I would almost say let's go one step further. I've just put flour into water and mixed it up. Like, you know, we're grainy. Yeah. We're yeah. not. You know. Okay. Oh. So I know it's so good. It's so good. So this is actually from a, a producer called Distillery Cazotte. Okay. It looks like Cazotte's. So it's a, someone that makes spirits as their main bread-winning product. Yeah. yeah. And Laurent Cazotte, which I will include a really cool video link in our on our Patreon page, all organically and actually a lot of biodynamically tended to fruit. Mm -hmm. But Laurent Cazotte is tending to his vines and all of his fruit organically and some of it even biodynamically. And regardless of whether it's going to be distilled in like a high quality spirit or whether it's going to be wine, yes, we know he grows grapes. I just said that. We're drinking some. He rears oh. pear trees, <gasps> wheat, barley, sunflowers, and he makes his own sunflower oil. Does he make his? Does he make alcohol from his pears too? Yeah, yeah, oh. for sure. Saffron tomatoes, mm. huge garden, and so much more. So I'll definitely include a link because it's fun to hear him talk about it. But now we're in uh, the village of Tarn, which is actually really quite close to Montpellier and Carcassonne area where the first sparkling wines were made mention of. And the grape here is called Mauzac, M-A-U-Z-A-C, which Mauzac is one of the oldest varietals still grown in France. It's a white grape. And 
been here for centuries, growing on clay and limestone soils here in Tarn. And I don't know, what do you think when you look at it? I, you can tell it's not clear, clear. Yep. But it doesn't look like we haven't just poured chunks into our wine or anything. Yeah, Like no. we can with a pet nat, because this is not a pet nat. This is done in the method ancestral. Yeah, it's very lightly golden. Like it's not even, it's almost like. Yeah, let's not say gold. I know. It's more it's like almost it's, like silver, honestly. Yeah, yeah, that's a great way. Like yeah. silver with like some touch of like pear. Yeah, or like, like white gold, maybe. Yeah, that's white a, gold. Yes. Yes. Nice work, Emily. That's that, good. That is a good analogy. White gold. Look it up, people. That's what this wine looks like. You can tell the bubbles are nice and really small. Mm-hmm. And on the nose, it just smells like white things, like white mm-hmm. gummy bears and the lemon biscuity, biscotti yeah. stuff. And you Rocks. taste it then, and you just want to die. Wow, it's so dry. I would this would I'd have a hard time with this. What do you mean? Well, I could. Oh, I see what you mean. I'd, You'd have I, a hard time with your self control, perhaps. I mean, I have never sat down to a bottle of wine ever in my twenty years in the wine business and like drank the whole bottle ever, like never. Wow. And I can show you some tips and tricks. Okay. <laughs> 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 Maybe I need them, but not with this bottle, I don't. No. Because this would be one of those where if I literally sat, um, mm-hmm. you know, however, whatever time and just like nipped on it, I'd yeah. be like, oh, oops. And it wouldn't take that long either. No. I'm just saying, I want to see how much alcohol is in this because it really does. Mm. Now, here's where this gets confusing, okay? So I'm turning this around. I'm looking for the amount of alcohol that's in this wine. It's called Boule Versante, which kind of means like effervescence and... Boule is the French word for bubbles. Okay. Boule, bouleversant. I look and it says, Vin biologique de France, pet nat brut. Oh. Now we're confusing people. Yes. Because right? is it a pet nat? Well, it's got one fermentation. Mm-hmm. But when you look at the website and when you know how this is made, yeah. it says the method ancestral method. They t- this is fermenting in probably stainless steel. And then they make sure that it's temperature controlled in the cellar. So they turn down the temperature for however many weeks so that that fermentation can slow down, go really low and slow. So it's it's never going to stop completely, right? But it's just chugging along at like a like yeah. a snail's, less than a snail's well, yeah, pace. Or a hibern- hibernating bear, like you were saying. Yeah, they don't still shut living. down, but Ex- they're... That's yeah. a great way to put it, right? Yeah. Okay, and then all of a sudden when they think it's the right time, they'll warm the cellar back up, and happy yeast. <laughs> okay, so maybe we need to say all method ancestrals are pet nats, but not all pet nats are method ancestrals. Anyway, now I'm confusing everyone, but it's funny that this is made in a method ancestral, Yeah, but yet the label says pet nat root. Why? Probably because pet nats freaking sell. Method ancestral does not sell. When you look at what is in all the newspapers or slash yep. wine periodicals yeah. online, you'll hear, I'll just mention it right now, because there's no steadfast, there's no like um, statistics that I can find about the sales of Petnat. Okay. Right? But steadily on the rise since I've been drinking Petnats back in 2013, 2014, they've only gotten more and more popular. And today I just took a quick note at like, Different articles. New York Times, 2018. Bubbles with joy. Petiant Naturel's triumphant return. Return? What, from the ancient ways? Method ancestral? Are we confusing things? Bon Appetit, 2015. Petnat, champagne's cool kid sister, is the bubbly you want to party with. 
Wine Enthusiast 2018, Your Pet Nat Primer. Esquire 2017, for the dudes, the 10 best pet nat wines under $40. Wow. So like, so people have been Esquire. writing. Yeah, people have been writing about this for the last like 20, or excuse me, for the last six years on like a kind of a more potent level. Yeah. So I think pet nat sells more than method ancestral because it's just pet nat. It's, yeah. It's hipster. Easier to say for yeah. one thing. Yeah. Unless it doesn't seem as hoity-toity because it's abbreviated foreign words instead of foreign words. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. But we, if I were selling this as a petillant naturel. Yeah, people would be like, Esquire would be like, fuck off. We're not writing what are the top 10 petillant naturels under yeah. $30. Yeah, yeah no. They're like, no, pet nat all day. Exactly. So do you love it? I love it. It tastes like sparkling lemonade, only the perfect version of that so like it's so lemony but it's not like that intense but it's just the the acidity and the lemonness are are there it's almost like a lemon drop yeah like yes like fake lemon but not yeah you know yeah and there is a quality about it like a I don't want to say an alkalinity because that's an, I don't mean that, but there's something about it that reminds me of like a really expensive, honestly, like a mineral water, like a, like sure, a soda yeah, water. Definitely. Like not LaCroix, not Perrier, but like some like Voss, like Norwegian sparkling water mm, or yeah. that German sparkling water that's really salty. Not mm-hmm. that this is salty, but like yeah, it's not, the yeah, mineral that I'm tasting, yeah. there's like an alkal taste that's like that wet alkaline that's yeah. super cool yeah definitely. i love it i love it too okay well let's listen to some more music if you don't mind i'm getting sick of talking and want to just drink wine and listen to you talk about music well let's listen to a bunch more then let's listen to more debbie c quickly so uh, five six or so years later debbie c wrote a book of preludes for piano preludes just little i mean kind of character pieces depending on who wrote them Uh, and the second prelude, he uses two scales that were new to him. One is the pentatonic scale. And the other is the whole tone scale, which we talked about super briefly in the beginning of the episode. And... Just for funsies, because basically this piece, he uses the whole tone scale for the first part, then uses the pentatonic scale, then goes back to whole tone. Let me play the whole tone scale for you. That's the whole tone scale. There are no half steps, only whole steps, only whole steps. So that's how he builds this first part of this piece. And then let's go ahead and hear the pentatonic part. All right. Mm-hmm. 
So this is titled Sails, like on a ship, mm. big ship, voile, voile. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Cool. And when you listen to it without all the interruptions, it's much easier to hear this kind of undulating waves in the left hand and the sails billowing in the wind in the right hand. It's very evocative and beautiful. Cool. Yeah. It sounds beautiful. Yeah. So let's do one more from someone else and then we'll go back to uh, some wine. Is Love that. that. Cool? All right. Well, I'll go back to some wine right now. Yeah, that sounds like a good idea. Uh, one of the, yeah, cheers. <laughs> one of the fun things about that piece by Debussy is that when it goes into the pentatonic scale on the piano, it does something fun that the pentatonic scale can do, which is if you play only the black keys on the piano, only the black keys, you're playing a pentatonic scale. So I don't know if you ever learned that song when you were a kid with your knuckles. Stops, then it's now I gotta yep, go. and now okay. you gotta stop. And there are songs like that too, where it's like, well, it's pentatonic here, but then, um, but yeah, that's a that's all the black keys. Now, Frederick Chopin wrote an etude decades before Debussy's called Black Keys, and it doesn't, it's not um, as evocative in terms of setting up a place like the Orient or Sails of the Wind. But I didn't even plan on listening to it, but let's go ahead and listen to Chopin's Black Keys etude. Okay. It's really fun. Anyway. Yeah, they're just rifling around yeah, in that like one foot of space. Yeah, just flying right. through that. It's so funny. We've we've talked so many times now, uh, and for great reasons, about uh, Dvorak, Antonin Dvorak. He was a Czech composer, and his Ninth Symphony, which is called From the New World. And we've specifically singled out the slow movement a couple different times on Scores and Pours. It's a beautiful melody, and it's also a pentatonic melody. So let's listen to that really quick. And it makes sense to hear a pentatonic melody there because Dvorak, the story goes, was influenced by an African-American spiritual Hmm. for that melody. Again, pentatonic scale all over spiritual music and other Christian music and hymns and and the like as well. Do you think that that was like an attempt, and I know this may be speculation on your part, so don't feel like I'm, you know, putting you on the spot, but like is that, you know, when you think of spiritual music, sure, let's feel guilty but let's feel hopeful. Mm-hmm. You know, a lot of it is about creating this this aura of hope. Yeah. So is that perhaps why? Because it is pleasing. It is pleasurable to hear. Yep. It does feel more lifted. Yeah. Okay. It's also it that, yes, absolutely. It's also very simple, right? And it's simple to learn. And it's also, you don't even really have to learn it. We all kind of already know it, which is really weird. And you can find all kinds of scholarly articles written by people from, you know, Harvard to Bobby McFerrin standing on stage at a TED Talk talking about how we already know this scale. It's it's like 
it's kind of a part of us and it comes probably it comes from children's song. And uh. because if one of the ubiquitous intervals, so two notes mm-hmm. uh, in the world is the minor third. Jill, Emily. come for dinner. Okay. Or yeah, 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 yeah. Right? Um. That's all pentatonic based. So, I mean, and these are things no one went to pass the vino. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's like nobody went to the far reaches of Norway and taught children to do that. And no one went to the the jungles of whatever country, either in India I'm or so- Africa, and taught children that. It's just, we just do it. Wow. Okay, so pleasurable, friendly. Yes. I mentioned before that both Method Ancestral and Petnat are just that. Right? It would also be pleasurable and friendly if you could top me off a little. Yes, that, that's what <laughs> friends do. Hold on a minute. Hold on a minute. Here I come. Awesome. Thank you. My pleasure. One of the one of the hits that pet nats get and method ancestrals they get is they're fun, they're, you know, keen, they're delightful, but that they're not what I what I find interesting here is we're listening to I mean, listen to these names, Chopin, Dvorak, mm-hmm. that pet nets aren't serious and, and method ancestral, not serious. And I, I know what they mean, you know, because winemakers are making this for fun, right? And it's usually not their, if they have a top wine, the grapes are not going f- to make a pet nat. They're making a, some serious still wine and then pet nets like what they have for an aperitif or, mm. you know, while they're hanging with their homies or having a picnic or something. And so they tend to not be taken too seriously. The French word for kind of gulp, gulp is glue, glue, you know, yep. drink, drink. And this wine is just that, right? I, I just made mention of that. I could just drink this all day and have it be <laughs> go, go down too quickly. Yep. So that's one of the bashes that pet nats get. And I don't say that that's not true. But if anybody says that they don't like, I, I would be curious to ask you, if people say they don't like pet nats. Yeah. They could, if they said, I don't like pet nets because they're not reflective of terroir, like that's maybe the only reason that they drink wine. I get that. Yeah. But if they say, I don't like pet nets because of the flavor, like I'm just not into pet nets, I'd be like, you're a hater. <laughs> like if someone, can, can, could you hear someone listening to that Dvorak or listening to that Chopin and saying, this is not pleasing to my ear? Now, granted, I know that that Chopin was a little crazy. Do I want to <laughs> listen at 5.30 a.m.? I don't. But... <laughs> Is it pleasing to my ear? I think there's obviously a little bit of a difference in what we're talking about here. But do yeah, you think is it consonant or dissonant? I think is what you're asking. Well, I'm asking: Can people say that they audibly don't like the pentatonic scale? Are they? I mean, there's certainly got to be people somewhere who. But don't are they haters? Like it. Then I, they. I mean, I don't know what, how you could hate. You know what I have to say to that? Do you hate this? You had a bad childhood if you don't like that. You know what I mean? That's just like, how do you not, how do you say, I, I hate that? Yeah, I know. Yeah, it's pretty funny. If you say, I don't like it because I've heard it 10,000 times. That's totally got different. You. Yeah, that's that's different. Hmm. I'm going to yeah. take a little sippy sip. All right. Why are these wines so popular, I think? I do think that it is their, their amiability, they're pleasurable, they're easy, but there is something about them, and a little bit more pet nats than method ancestral, I'll be honest, because to me, this is a little bit more friendly, say, I'm hanging out with my mom's girlfriends, right? Let's just say, yeah, non-COVID times. And they're like, hey, Jill, you brought some wine for us. If I poured them this, 
Yeah. 99.9% of them are going to like them, like it. And let's just say 110% of them because I just said that they'd be haters and my mom's friends aren't <laughs> haters. So let's, they would all love it. Mm-hmm. But if I brought them a pet gnat, like a straight up unfiltered, you know, they may be like, whoa. But I think in the end, with a little explanation of what it is that they're tasting, they would love it. And why? Because I think... There's something inherent in us as humans. Like we, right now, everybody's, you know, we've gotten into kombucha and we've gotten into kimchi and puer tea and, you know, like like intense yo- sour yogurt, you know? And there's all these like very estery things, like smelly that harkens back to like times of yore, right? Like <laughs> when we, like ancient things that right now as humans, we kind of, we need a prayer, you know? We need something that will put us back to center. And I think a lot of these flavors really, in the midst of, yes, there's been organic food for a while, and yes, there's been artisanal food and local food for a while. Yeah. As industrial food and packaged food is, like, hopefully reaching an apex, I feel like these flavors give people hope and, like, something to believe in. Like, they taste mm-hmm. it and they're like, wow. I I can't tell you how many times people smell these in their first describing words, you know, nouns. It tastes like grapes. Like, yeah. And that's really far. I mean, listen to us. We've been like, oh, it smells like lemon and like biscuits (laughs) and like all these things, which granted, I think that that's just because we're used to not saying it smells like grapes because people would be like, well, why am I listening to this podcast? Duh. (laughs) But I don't know. I think that that's one of the allures right now of pet nets. It's that they do... They don't just taste like this predictable, mm-hmm. like, I'm going to get a Chinon that's from the Loire Valley, and it tastes like Cab Franc, and it tastes like leaves, and it tastes like graphite, and it tastes like cranberries. Yeah. Like, you, when you buy a pet nat or a method ancestral, you're like, what the hell is this going to be like? I mean, this is, un- fortunately or unfortunately, this is $37 method ancestral wine. Wow. But for $37, people don't know what they're getting. Right. You know, it's not like you can get a Napa Valley cab and you know. Yep. And so that's kind of one of the, I think I'm really thankful to be in the wine business right now because all the hipsters and the hipster haters and whatever, but people that <laughs> run around in my world, whether they spend 20 or $40 on a pet net, yeah. a lot of times they're like, well, this is going to be interesting, yeah. um, which is super cool. It's not like they're buying it because they know what it's going to be like. They buy it because they're like, ooh, what is this one going to be like? Yeah. Just super fun fun place to be right now in the world of sparkling wine, I think. Mm-hmm. One more? Yeah, please. There are, first of all, so, so many more. I just had to pick and choose. And I didn't really do so, whatever. It's it just, there are so many examples. A uh, favorite of mine comes from a British composer named Rafe Von Williams. Rafe looks like Ralph, but it's Von Williams. And Von Williams wrote a very beautiful piece for violin solo and piano called the lark ascending as in the bird the lark ascending and then eventually orchestrated it a few years later so he wrote the piano and violin version in 1914 and then after the war ended world war one of course he orchestrated it and it's beautiful so the violinist starts off with a very long um very free solo playing uh, in a pentatonic scale. So let's listen. The Lark Ascending by Rafe Von Williams. Mm-hmm. 
Yeah. Beautiful. Very lark-like. Yes. <laughs> ascending. Ascending. Also. Ascending up into the atmosphere. Yeah. Is there truth in, because we know that the world of nature has all kinds of sounds. Yeah. Can we make any sort of distinction between the pentatonic scale and nature? So the pentatonic scale, the notes of the pentatonic scale do occur naturally in the what's known as the harmonic series. So the harmonic series is something, and if I get some of this wrong, I apologize. This is I haven't looked up the harmonic series in a while. I know it because I'm a brass player. Brass players know the harmonic series because that's how brass instruments work. So if you take a pipe and put a hole in it, if you make a really rudimentary flute and you just start blowing across it, the harder you blow, the more notes come out, right? Mm -hmm. The different notes that come out. And that's all physics and science. Like Mm -hmm. you don't get to make that decision unless you start putting more holes in it, obviously, right? So with a brass instrument, if you pick up a trombone and don't move the slide and you just play as many notes as you can without moving the slide, just you'll get a very patterned sequence of notes. Okay, yeah, I understand. And same on trumpet, French horn, whatever. Uh, and that's because you're taking a tube and putting air through it. And how, So can yeah. I just, like, so to make sure I understand, so, like, C, because like, I played, well, I played the trumpet. I yep. really can't anymore except for a few things. But, like, so C and G and then high C and then is it kind of like that, you mean? Yep. Okay. So on trumpets, it's really hard. With there the is a bass valve. fundamental that's hard to get out on a trumpet. So technically, the first thing that happens is an octave. So it would be on a trumpet. This isn't what the notes would be on a piano. But on a trumpet, it would be a very, very low C that doesn't really naturally, it kind of is difficult to get out on the trumpet. Then middle C, quote unquote, on a trumpet. Yep. Then the C above that. No, I'm sorry. And the G above then that. Then the G above that. Then the C above that one. Then an E. Mm-hmm. Then another G. Then a B flat. Then a C. Then a D. Then, and so then it starts to get really compressed the higher you get. Wow. So it starts with an octave, then a fifth, then a fourth, then a major third, then a minor third, then another minor third, then Amazing. a whole step. Okay, then, so how, let's, how does so this get back those, to nature? Well, you asked me if the pentatonic scale occurs in nature, and those notes are in that harmonic series. Okay. But not you don't hear them laid out like that, if that makes sense. So when we play the pentatonic scale and we hear this... You aren't going to hear those notes in that order in the yeah, harmonic series, but those notes are in the harmonic series eventually in some way. So that's a really complex answer. I'm sorry, but that's the best I can do without no, looking up I, all. No, I, I appreciate it because yeah. I think like just to sort of hold a candle to that whole discussion. Yeah. I mean, pet nets are sort of, I get why people confuse them and I also get why it's they are sort of one and the same and not at all because in theory, a pet nat is all it's saying is it's natural pétillance, right? And mm-hmm. then everybody else sort of puts their own descriptor, winemaker or wine judge or drinker, yeah. is like, oh, this is made like a this is made in a pet nat style. Okay, well, <laughs> as long as it has natural fucking bubbles, it's a pet nat. Yeah. So wow. so then in theory, 
you know, and I don't mean to like just eradicate everything I just said. Yeah. But I'm, I guess I'm trying to have a description where, because I know a lot of people ask these questions, like what's the difference between method ancestral and pet nets? And I went to California in October. We did as scores and pores for a couple mm-hmm. episodes. And like I went there to do some other research and work. And I was tasting people's 2020 pet nets. Why? Because they were already done. Like they had fermented, they had bottled them. And by the time I got there, because it was an early harvest, because it was very hot and the wildfires, people needed to get that fruit in really quick. Right. Then as wines are fermenting, people already had that in bottle and CO2 had already formed and sugar had been consumed. Unbelievable. So we were drinking pet nats. I was drinking pet nats. I shouldn't say we, because it's not you. Well, we had a pet nat while we were there from 2020. It's true. We the had Jay a pet, Bricks one. We did. Yeah. And I had pet nats from some friends of mine at Purity and different wineries that were already done in 2020. So th- I guess to me, that's the difference between a pet nat when I'm speaking to it, like uh, doing sommelier work or in an educational f- like forum, is a pet nat is something that has kind of come to fruition rather rapidly. Yeah. And a method ancestral is something that has... They both have natural pétillance, quote unquote. We're not adding anything to allow that carbonation to occur. Yep. But method ancestral has taken a while longer. You know, it has even if it's even if it's forced, a la we've yeah. put it in a refrigerator. Yeah. So to speak, it's it's happened over a longer period of time, months. Wow. You know? So that's I guess how I wanted to just sure. Yeah. Just as as kind of closing and uncompressed, compressed, you know, something that happens quickly compared to something that takes a little more time to happen. Yes, and so my final, as as those should be my final thoughts. Sure, we'll just let's talk about some places where pet nats and method ancestral is happening because we know France. Yes, yeah, yeah, we know Spain. I mean, the word's French for fuck's sake. (laughs) It's true. (laughs) (laughs) We know Spain, Penedès, the heart of a lot of natural wines. Obviously, there, Republic of Georgia. The last time I went, they were making pet nets. Idaho? They were making, yes, Idaho is making pet nets. You'd think like, oh, Georgia? Really? Yeah. In Quevery, people would start to ferment, and then they'd be like, let's get that into some bottles, and let's get crown cap on it. Wow. Let's have, let's sell that to the hipsters in New York at 38 bucks a bottle. Yeah, no Good shit. Times. Some Quevery pet nat? Hell yeah. yeah. Vermont, pet nets. Mexico. Whoa. One that I can speak to in particular from a dude that I know who makes it. The winery is called Bitchy. Dry farmed grapes. We don't even know what they're called. Well, a grape that we don't even know what it's called. It's called Pet Mex. <laughs> yeah, nice job, Noel. A friend of mine tried to make a pet net here in Minnesota from local fruit. Didn't really work out. He bottled it, I think, a little too late, so it didn't have enough sugar. Mm-hmm. But he tried. Minnesota <laughs> pet nets, they're on their way. Domain Nakajima. Ooh, Japanese, Japanese pet nat. Pet nat. You know who else is? Sorry. Domaine Chandon is making a $40. Where's that? Making $40 pet nat. Chandon is like the smooth elevator classical of classical music. Like they're just making, they pump out. Are they French? They are based in California. Okay. And they have like. I honestly, their family history eludes me because they may come from a French background, but the the outfit that I'm talking about is specifically located California, yeah. Western California, mm-hmm. and they're known for like not really great quality stuff. Mm. Forty dollar pet net, whatever. Wow, exactly. You know what I say to that? Cheers. Whatever. To scores and pours. 
Just oh, you know, oh yeah. <laughs> I was like, the scores and pours and like, the glass was empty. Oh no. That's hey, well, beautiful. Before we to scores and pours, we're gonna yeah. go out on some classic music, aren't we? No, yeah, let's go wait, out wait, on. Wait. We're gonna go out on some like modern music, right? Well, I mean, if you consider modern to be sometime in the twentieth uh, century with electric guitars, then yes. Why, why would I not? I don't know. What else is modern music? I guess acoustic guitars is the better way. But yeah, this is a, there are, I mean, seriously. I'm not, we, what I'm not asking for is Lady Gaga. No Lady Gaga. Although We're gonna, she probably I'm going to hit you with some Pink Floyd. And I could, again, we could listen to pentatonic music in scales in rock and pop and country music the rest of the week and not even get up and go to the bathroom. So this, <laughs> the fact that I'm choosing this is just, it's easy to play for you on the piano. It's not some shredding like Steve Vai solo where he's pentatonicking all over the place. This is just a very popular campfire Pink Floyd tune called Wish You Were Here that the guitar solo line that it starts with is a pentatonic scale. So first I'll play it for you on the piano so you can hear the scale and hear how it's played and then we'll listen to the Pink Floyd version. Sounds great. Yeah. So the part goes. To scores and pours. To scores and pours. And maybe maybe a little to Pink Floyd. And to Pink Floyd. Thank you for listening to this episode of Scores and Pours with Joe Mott and Emily Reese. You can find links and information about this podcast and support us financially at patreon.com slash scores and pours. And you'll also find a link to our merchandise there. We are on Instagram at scores and pours. You can send us a direct message there. We would love to hear your questions or comments or show ideas. And if you would please give us a rating where you listen to your podcasts. Consider supporting the musicians we featured today by purchasing their music. Edited by Emily Reese and Jill Mott, our producer is Sam Keenan. Scores and Pours is a production of June Media Inc. June. June's Little Kitty. So, so you think you could tell Heaven from hell Can you tell a green field?